Gentle Mary laid her child lowly in a manger. This is our Protestant version of a Catholic hymn, Maiden, Mother, Meek and Mild. It captures a popular idea we have of Mary, that she is the model of submission. It's the image of Mary most often depicted in art, her face placid, her hands together in prayer or perhaps crossed over her heart, or better yet, holding her child. Here is the icon of our Blessed Virgin, depicted through the centuries by artists and popes alike. But is this the Mary of the Magnificat? Listen now for the word of God as it comes to us from Mary in Luke chapter 1 during her visit with her cousin Elizabeth. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and his descendants forever. This is the word of the Lord. Whenever we speak a word we believe to come from God, we throw ourselves on the mercy of that God and on our listeners. But can I just say, what has gotten into Mary? Did you hear what she said? This is not the merry, meek, and mild that we sing about. I don't know, maybe, maybe it's Elizabeth's fault. Elizabeth calls her blessed among women, which is the same words that are used by the prophetess Deborah in the book of Judges to describe Jael, a woman who killed the Canaanite commander-in-chief with a tent peg. Not quite gentle, meek, and mild. But Mary, really. God scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, brings down the powerful from their thrones while lifting up the lowly, fills the hungry with good things. Does God really have to send the rich away empty? Like Deborah's song and Hannah's song in 1 Samuel, 
Mary's Magnificat is no sentimental version of I'm okay, you're okay. In fact, it is much more like the phrase that's appearing on the signs of protesters and the hashtag that is trending on Twitter in the wake of the violent deaths of several unarmed young black men and boys and the perceived lack of accountability for those responsible for their deaths. This phrase that people are using to decry what they see as signs of pervasive racism and injustice in our country is this, black lives matter. Black lives matter. On the one hand, it seems like a slogan we could all get behind, especially in the wake of these tragedies. Yet, these three words have provoked a backlash of protest and angry response. And some people are insisting that protesters instead use the phrase, all lives matter. On one level, the debate seems silly. Who would disagree with either? And since black lives are most certainly included in the phrase, all lives matter, why not use the more general, inclusive language? A version of this debate surfaced when we were discussing one of Jesus' parables, one that will be the theme of one of our upcoming Wednesday night worship services. It was the parable of the rich man and Lazarus from Luke 16. The rich man is described as well-dressed and well-fed, while Lazarus languishes at his gate, poor, hungry, covered in sores. In the parable, both men die, and the rich man finds himself being tormented in Hades, while Lazarus is finally comforted in heaven. The rich man begs for Abraham to send Lazarus down to comfort him, but Abraham responds that there is too great a chasm between them for any such thing. How are we supposed to talk about this parable with children, we wanted to know. But really, how... How are we supposed to talk about this parable to ourselves? And we wondered whether or not we could just leave out all that uncomfortable language about the rich and the poor and instead just make the moral of the story that God includes everybody. The problem, of course, is that the parable, like the Magnificat, goes to great lengths to say the opposite of that. It's discomforting to many of us precisely because of its specificity. Try, for instance, to imagine the Magnificat without showing any partiality. It can't be done. God's partiality seems to be the theme of the whole thing. Mary rejoices because God has shown favor to her. A woman in a patriarchal society, a poor or lowly person, a Jew in a land conquered by the Roman Empire. If Mary had been on Twitter, I wouldn't be surprised if she tagged this Magnificat with things like, Jewish lives matter, poor lives matter. No doubt there would have been a backlash then, too, particularly from the Roman citizens. And in a sense, all who cry, all lives matter, are right, completely right. Of course all lives matter to God. If that weren't the case, Jesus wouldn't have spent so much energy 
warning people about the dangers of wealth and power, calling all to repentance. Jesus healed the centurion's daughter and ate with tax collectors. But again and again, through Jesus and the prophets, God does seem to go out of God's way to say that the lives that society values the least matter. And in America today, I think that means that black lives matter. But why do we have to say it? Well, I think it's important to say it because of studies that show between 2010 and 2012, for instance, that young black males were 21 times more likely than their white peers to be killed by police. Statistics that say that a black boy born today in the United States has a life expectancy five years shorter than that of a white boy. I think it's important to say that black lives matter because the median income among black Americans is only about half that of white Americans. And according to a recent article in the New York Times, the U.S. has a greater wealth gap between blacks and whites than South Africa did during apartheid. Another study that was published in the American Journal of Sociology showed that newly released white felons experience better job hunting success than young black men with no criminal record. It's not that we are all intentionally racist, but I do believe that we are all unintentionally biased. A good example is the study conducted by Brigham Young University economics professor that showed that NBA referees, no matter what their race, consistently called more fouls on players of a different race than their own. Now imagine a society in which there are more white referees than black ones. Another more pointed example is this classic study of race in which psychologists show uh, people two pictures. In one, uh, two, men, two white men are fighting and one of them has a knife. In the other, a white man and a black man are fighting and the white man has the knife. Now when they ask people to identify which man was armed in the first picture, most people got it right. But when they were asked the same question about the second photo, the one in which the white man was armed but the black man was not, most people, black and white, incorrectly said that the black man had the knife. Anderson Cooper just did an interview with the mothers of Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, and Eric Garner. And it wasn't about whether or not any of the men who killed their sons did it on purpose because they hated black people. But all the mothers believed that if their sons had been white, those tragedies would have been much less likely to occur. And when asked, well, what, what can we do to change how black people are perceived, one of the mothers said her only hope was divine intervention. Fortunately, God does seem to be in the business of hearing the cries of those whose lives are undervalued in society and making a bold intervention, a statement that those lives in particular matter. The lives of criminals, of foreigners, of women, of children, poor people, of slaves. As Mary said, not 
the gentle Mary, I'm afraid. Maybe we should start calling her proud Mary instead. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for God has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. It's not the lowliness that makes Mary proud. It's God's radical and subversive favor. And Mary is not the first or the last to notice it. Steve mentioned that that Jesus uh, must have been taught by Mary, and so maybe it should be come as no surprise that in Luke 4, when Jesus preaches to his hometown, he claims to embody Isaiah's words that we said in the call to worship. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and to let the oppressed go free. The Magnificat is the precursor to the Sermon on the Plain in Luke 6, where Jesus says, Blessed are you who are poor, hungry, weeping, hated, excluded. But woe to you who are rich, full, laughing, admired. And before Mary, there was the exodus of the slaves from Egypt. And then the laws that protected widows, orphans, aliens, and the oppressed. And then prophets like Amos, Joel, Isaiah. The offensive, potentially polarizing rhetoric of the Magnificat is not unique to Mary. Now some of us already hear these texts as good news. We know what it is to be low. To be empty to be hungry, to mourn. Maybe here as the holidays approach, we are even more aware of the ways in which we do not feel blessed or favored by God. And in that case, a word from God like the Magnificat can give us hope and remind us of all the times that God has shown favor to people like us. We can hear in proud Mary's declaration that our lives matter too, our particular lives. But we have to be honest too about our particular power and privileges. I admit there is part of me inclined to hear these texts, the Magnificat, the woes, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, as bad news, as reverse discrimination almost. The white part, the educated part, the upper-middle-class part, the American part, there are plenty of parts of me that would much rather God, Mary, Jesus, the prophets, had said instead, consistently, all lives matter. So I wouldn't have to feel, even for an instant, what so many others feel every day of their lives. But of course, the thing... I'm really afraid of. What really is making me uncomfortable is exactly what Jesus modeled. In Jesus, the Mighty One gave up all his power, poured himself out for our sake, gave up comfort, security, privilege, everything I cling to. I'll be honest, I don't know how to do this. I don't know if I will ever be able to do this. My most feeble attempts already seem infected by self-interest 
or reluctance or necessity or self-righteousness. But maybe the good news for all of us in the Magnificat is that we don't have to be able to do for ourselves what is necessary for salvation. God can and will do it for us. If we need to be emptied, we can trust God to empty us. If we need to be lifted up, we can trust God to lift us up. And the end of all that emptying and filling, that knocking down and lifting up, is really just a level playing field. A world where everyone really does love their neighbors as themselves, so that there is no longer any rich or poor any Jew or Gentile, any male or female, where we don't have to say that black lives matter because there aren't any statistics or tragedies that claim otherwise. But until that day comes, the Magnificat, I think, calls us to keep saying it. Black lives matter. And to try saying it like Mary says it, rejoicing, in the good news that it is true because God says it is true. And we can live into hope like Mary did, trusting in God, our Savior. Amen.